0: Before we dive into the text, which we'll be starting, Mark chapter 11, beginning with verse 12, but before we get there, let me give you a little context in case you're new or in case you just uh, have short-term memory problems like me. I can't remember last week from the week after. Like, it just gets very complicated. So sometimes it's good to just start with a little context. Jesus has finally arrived in Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Passover, Last Sunday, we looked at Jesus' triumphal entry. And in his entry to Jerusalem, and all of the, the festivity and the rigmarole and the celebration that commenced, as the people cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna, literally save us, Jesus making his way from the Mount of Olives down the Kidron Valley up into Jerusalem. Jesus presents himself to Jerusalem, to Israel, to the people of God in two ways through this experience, through this occasion. First, he presents himself as the Messiah. The promised Messiah foretold many years before by the prophet Daniel. This was his day, the day of the Messiah's visitation, the day when the veil was pulled back and Jesus was presented to the people who, had sh- who should have been waiting and expecting But Jesus also presents himself, not just as the Jewish Messiah, but more importantly for you and I, because we're not Jewish per se, he presents himself as the Passover, the Passover sacrifice. Jesus coming to celebrate the feast on Sunday, the day of his entry, was the customary day that the sacrifices were were presented in the temple. And in the presenting of the sacrifices, the rest of the week, there would be an evaluation that would commence where they would examine the sacrifice to ensure that the sacrifice was spotless, without blemish, was worthy as an offering. And what we'll see over the next several weeks in our case, but the next several days in Jesus' is, that the Passover sacrifice has been presented, and now, moving forward, we will see the religious leaders evaluate the Passover sacrifice. And we'll see that Jesus, he comes through and as Pontius Pilate would say, I find nothing wrong with this man. And yet he was still executed. Jesus concludes this triumphal entry. They're at the temple. He enters the temple and though Mark downplays Jesus' reaction to what he sees taking place, the other gospel accounts make it clear that Jesus, when he enters the temple, When he sees what's happening, he's irked. He's tweaked out by what he's witnessing taking place in the outer courtyard. Now, instead of immediately reacting in anger, and he would have been justified in doing so, Mark tells us that Jesus retreats back to Bethany, the home of Mary Martha Lazarus, which was the suburb of Jerusalem, a place Jesus often stayed when he traveled to the city. He retreats back to Bethany for the night. Instead of just acting out in anger, Jesus processes what he's seeing. He goes back for the evening. So he's had all night to dwell on what he's seen, to, to contemplate what he's going to do. And we're told in verse 12 that the next day, so Jesus entered Jerusalem on Sunday, We call it Palm Sunday, making this day, the next day, Monday. And when he had come out from Bethany, Jesus was hungry. It would be breakfast time. And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, Jesus went to see if perhaps he could find something on it to eat. And when he came, he found nothing, nothing but leaves. For it was not the season for figs, but in response, Jesus said to the tree, Let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And then Mark tells us that his disciples heard it. Now, the scene of activity. Jesus, the Mary crew, the twelve, they're making the two-mile journey from Bethany to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. They'll arrive at the Mount of Olives, but before they do, they pass through another suburb, a town that we were introduced to last week known as Bethpage. Bethpage literally means the city of the figs. It was known for its fig groves, and thus it's fitting that Jesus would look for a fig tree to provide him something to eat. Now, Mark tells us that as he traveled, Mary, Martha, probably slacking on the job, they don't have breakfast There's not a Mickey D's or a Waffle House for Jesus to stop at. He's on a direct journey, making his way back to the city. He's hungry. Mark tells us that Jesus was hungry. And though a very simple observation that Mark provides for us, a very simple, subtle detail, it does give us a unique aspect to the story that's kind of abnormal. Think back to how many times we're told Concerning the ministry and the life, the interactions of Jesus, how many times that we're told he was hungry? It's actually a fascinating study because you'll find that there's only one other mention in the entire life of Jesus where he was hungry. We're told in other instances that the multitudes were hungry, or the disciples were hungry, or other people were hungry, and no doubt we could assume that Jesus naturally struggled with human hunger, but the only occasion we're told where Jesus was hungry, the only time we find the same word used by Mark here, is during the wilderness temptation. After Jesus had fasted for 40 days, Matthew tells us, he was hungry. So the only other occasion we're ever told or ever mentioned Jesus experiencing this particular physical uh, anomaly was in a wilderness temptation, which means that when Mark uses this detail, when Mark tells us that Jesus is making his way from, Beth, from Bethany to Jerusalem, he's cruising through Bethpage. When Mark tells us that Jesus was hungry, the detail was used by our author to try to perk up our attention. Wait a second. I've been reading this entire gospel, this entire narrative. I'm learning about Jesus. This is the first time in Mark's gospel I'm given this detail. Only the second time in any account we're provided this detail, which means what? That what's about to happen next is extremely important. In the distance, Jesus we're told, sees a fig tree. He's hungry. He sees a fig tree having leaves. So he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. But when he came, Mark tells us that he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. Now this phrase, the season for figs, can be a little complicated especially in light of what we'll see happening later on in Jesus' interactions with the fig tree. But you should note that there were two croppings of figs when it came to this particular tree. There were two times, two seasons, a minor one and a major one, where the tree would have fruit. First, there was the main crop, and this wasn't the season. The main crop would come later the appropriate season where the tree would yield its full bloom. However, there was always an initial cropping that would come with the blooming of the tree, which means that as Jesus approaches the tree, because the tree showed all the right signs of having fruit, he's disappointed because it was advertising something it wasn't producing. Jesus sees from afar that this tree has leaves. So he's thinking, okay, great. The first crop, there should be figs on it. He gets closer, he discovers, wait a second, there is no fruit. And so what does Jesus do? He pronounces a curse on the tree. He says, let no one eat fruit from you ever again. It's a bizarre exchange to say the least of all the things Jesus could be doing as he's going to Jerusalem to die and pay for the sins of the world, taking a little detour to curse a tree seems a little weird. It's weird enough that Mark even tells us that the whole exchange, it kind of caught the disciples' attention. Everything that would catch the disciples' attention, this was one that they made a middle note of. Now, though we'll be addressing the entire exchange here a little bit later on in our study. This is what you need to take away from this initial interaction. Four things that you need to take away. We're gonna breeze through them, we're gonna address them later, but four things from this section of scripture that you need to note. First, Jesus had a unique hunger. Mark includes a detail that he wouldn't have otherwise. Secondly, Jesus came to the fig tree desiring food. He was hungry, and he comes to this tree to eat. Tragically, thirdly, the tree appeared to have fruit, but in actuality possessed nothing but leaves. And because, fourthly, of the tree's fruitlessness, Jesus pronounces a curse. So, verse 15, they come to Jerusalem, and Jesus, he goes into the temple And he begins a throwdown. We're told that he began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple. And we're told that he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. Now, remember the context. Jesus has already visited the temple before returning for the evening— To Bethany, he's already evaluated the comings and goings. He's not reacting. He returns Monday, calm, cool, collected, calculated. And what he's about to do, what Jesus does here is extremely thought out and intentional. So how does it roll? First, he enters the temple. Though the temple itself wasn't very large, And if you go back to the original blueprints for the temple, Solomon's temple, you'll find that the building itself was quite small. But Herod's temple, kind of the renovated temple of Zerubbabel, it possessed a large complex. The temple was the same as far as its parameters and its uh, general blueprint. They couldn't mess with that. But Herod, wanting to kind of present out a a modern of engineering, wanted to ham it up and make it an attraction, he kind of, well, proceeded liberally with how he designed the outer court. The temple, it encompassed approximately 35 acres of prime real estate in Jerusalem, traditionally known as the Temple Mount. Specifically, Jesus would have entered the outer court of the Gentiles, which was an area of about 18 acres that surrounded the temple itself. And within this whole area, there was Solomon's portico. There were other areas. It was quite an incredible complex. So Jesus enters the temple. He enters this outer court. And what does he see? Well, you need to understand a little of the history to understand the context. The temple The temple and its proceedings. It was a racket of the highest order. And it was a racket run by a family. And it's kind of like that kind of a family. It's like Tony Soprano and the boys are running the temple mount. This is how things are taking place. According to Josephus, the principal players in this religious racket were the high priest Annas, his five sons, and the high priest, Caiaphas. Now, Annas had been the high priest for many, many years. He was the principal broker, you could say. But in 15 AD, the Romans removed him from office because of some of the unrest that was taking place in the region. He was stripped of his title, his official capacity as high priest, though we'll find he's still referenced as a high priest, But you should note, he still controlled the comings and goings. As a matter of fact, his influence really played out through his five sons and his son-in-law, the high priest Caiaphas. Now, Caiaphas is an interesting character because Annas runs the show. His sons are kind of his proxies. And what did they do? They took the son-in-law and they decided to make him a figurehead with no power. Use the son in law for your own gain. So Caiaphas becomes the high priest, but he has no control over anything. He's a yes man, he's just a puppet. Annas is pulling the strings. And what happens? Caiaphas has no power, Annas is running the show, Josephus even tells us that Caiaphas, and doing nothing but simply being a figurehead, pulled in approximately, with today's exchange rate, about three million dollars a year. This was a very profitable enterprise, and let me explain how the racket worked. So it's Passover, and imagine you're a pilgrim. Imagine you live on the, the shoreline there in Galilee. It's that time of the year where you, you set aside your nets. You've been saving up for the occasion. You load up the family. You move to Beverly. No, no. He, he, he gets in. They make their way down. They go up to Jerusalem. This is awesome. This is the, a break. They're going to worship God. And all year, they've set aside a little lamb that they're going to use as their sacrifice, as their offering. This is how they atone for sin. And so they go to worship God this one occasion of the year with the kids and the family, and they get there, and they enter the outer court on Sunday with their little lamb. Now, in order for the lamb to be accepted as a sacrifice, it first had to be inspected by a priest. Now, if if you couldn't afford a lamb, you would bring a dove, And most people were poor. And so the law gave a condition that if you were poor, you could could bring a dove. But either way, here you are. You've got your lamb. You've got your sacrifice. You've got the kids. This is a holy, a religious, an awesome experience. And you enter the court. And you go up to the priest. Now, don't forget... The population has inflated about three times the norm. The norm is about half a million. It's, there's three million people all coming to Jerusalem for the same thing. So you can imagine the Temple Mount is buzzing. It's crazy. It's packed. You're waiting in line. This is worse than the TSA, which is worse, which is, I flew this past week. That's a joke. So you're in line. You're waiting. The hours go by. You finally get up to the counter. You present your offering well, what would the priests do? Almost inevitably, they would find a blemish. They would say, well, see the hangnail? You see that little, that little spot in the fur? Mm. See, the, the sacrifice, it, it's not good enough. It's not gonna work. Now, now you're standing there and you've kind of prepared yourself for the possibility of it. But you're still disappointed because, I mean, you've traveled so far, and now your sacrifice, this is why you're here, isn't good enough. It's not going to work. But it just so happens, after breaking the bad news that your sacrifice won't work, your, your little you lamb won't, won't suffice, they say, well, it just so happens that for 1995 you can buy a special temple lamb. You see the counter? And so you turn and you look over, and there's another counter. Selling spotless lambs, and that line is long because everybody's getting shifted over. And so you get into that line. I don't know what you do with your worthless lamb, I don't know. Hang on to it, I guess, for safekeeping, bring it home, but you're waiting in line now. And after the hours pass by, you finally get up to the counter. And this is quite an expensive lamb. It's marked up, but I, you know, you gotta do what you gotta do. You've traveled so far, you gotta have an offering. So you're gonna get gouged, it's overpriced, but you gotta pay it. So you you fiddle around for the coin, you drop the Benjamin, and they're like, "Oh, oh, oh, so sorry. Well, you see, we can't accept that money. Because Scripture tells us, the law makes it clear, that we're not to have any graven image. And if you see that coin, has the image of Caesar on it. And because of that image, it's graven. Like, this is a holy place. It's it's the place of God. So your money's no good. Now you're looking around saying, how in the world am I going to buy this overpriced lamb if my money's no good? Well, the priest just happened to tell you. If you look over there, it just so happens that we'll convert your currency into a special currency temple coin and so you go over to the next line it's long you wait your turn and the exchange rate is horrible i mean it's like pesos to dollars I mean, your your $100 markup is now a $200 markup. And so you exchange your money. You finally get the temple coin. You go back into the line with with the the spotless lambs. You finally are able to buy it. You get into the, the other line so that the priest can finally inspect it and then take it back. It's a racket. It's a racket. Imagine you've traveled so many miles on foot. And this is what you're seeing. And why did this racket enraged Jesus so? I think there's three simple reasons. First, the religious leaders, the priests, their job was to represent God. And with the racket established the way that it was, they were misrepresenting the God they were supposed to be representing. How tragic They were supposed to come and these priests were supposed to engage them. The priests were to represent the people to God and yet they were acting in such a way. The second reason this enraged Jesus is that the process obviously made it very difficult to worship. You're coming with what purpose? To make an offering, to worship, to engage God. And instead of engaging God, the people who are supposed to be representing God are taking your money Yeah, the church hasn't changed a lot, has it? But then the third reason the outer court. The outer court was for the Gentiles. The Gentiles weren't allowed to enter any other part of the temple. All of the Jews were able to go to the next courtyard. The women had to stay there and the men were able to go to the next, but the men couldn't even proceed any further. Then it would be the priests. And then there was this intersection that only the high priest could go once a year. This whole hierarchy, the Gentiles, this outer court where all of this was happening, this was it. This was as far as they could go. This was where they were supposed to be worshiping. And why did it enrage Jesus so? because it was a poor witness for pagan Gentiles who were coming to encounter the living God. They were seeking. And this is what they found? It makes sense in the book of Acts where the Ethiopian, he came to Jerusalem, and he goes back. And he's disappointed. And he's reading from the scroll. This was his experience with religion. Now, in response to what he sees Jesus, calm, cool, calculated. He does three deliberate things as he enters the temple. First, we're told that he drove out those who bought and sold in the temple. To drive out. The Greek verb, it literally means to violently expel a person. Jesus rolls up the shirt sleeves, hikes his robes, and he begins to physically encounter people like bare knuckle brawling Jesus. And the, that's what the phrase indicates. He drove them out. Jesus didn't come and say, you know, guys, this is really not how it's supposed to be going. And since I'm mink, Jesus, hey, why don't you just kind of slowly maybe make your way out? If that would be okay. No. This is the second time, by the way, Jesus does this. The first time Jesus did this, we're told that, that he sits there. He's sitting in the temple weaving together a whip as he's watching this. And once the whip's done, then he goes to town. Jesus violently drove them out. Secondly, we're told that he overturned the tables, you know, the money changers. And he overturned the seats of those who sold doves. This phrase overturned, it's the Greek verb katastropho which means to turn over the soil with a plow. It's where we get the word catastrophe from. Jesus is like a tornado leaving a wake behind, like a path of destruction is following Jesus as he makes his way through the temple. And on a side note, I love, I think Mark's very specific here. And for you animal lovers, please note this. Jesus overturned the tables. So he kicks these tables over, the money flies everywhere. But then what does he do? Does he kick over the tables with the doves? No, he just kicks over the seats of those who sold the doves. Jesus sees those poor little doves, they they didn't do anything wrong. Instead of kicking over the tables, and the dove cages falling over, Jesus is a little sensitive to the doves. I think that's kind of cool. Jesus displaying a little sensitivity to animals. Thirdly, we're told that he would not allow anyone at this point to carry wares to the temple. Now, this word wares, the noun, it means a vessel, or if you kind of modernize it, like domestic gear. Now, there's a lot of uh, different thoughts in regards to what this specifically means, but almost universally, everyone concedes this fact about it, that Jesus, after driving out those who bought and sold in the temple, after overturning the tables, the seats, of those who sold doves, that at this point, Jesus, in effect, shuts down temple business. So he deals with what's happening there, and then he doesn't allow anyone else back in to do the same old thing. Now, kind of a question that pops up to my mind as I read through this. There's a racket of the highest order, a lot of money exchanging hands, why would no one try to stop him? I mean, why why does no one step in and like go toe to toe with Jesus? I, I mean, why do they just allow him to do this without it seemingly putting up any resistance? I think there's two answers. First, Jesus acted as one who possessed authority. You know, in the book of Revelation, Jesus is is described as having eyes like a flame of fire. And I think this is probably a precursor. Like Jesus saw red. Everyone recognized it and stood out of the way. Like this is someone I don't wanna go toe-to-toe with right now. And so everyone takes a step back because no one would dare stop Jesus in the middle of what he's up to. But I think the second point is relevant because I think no one tried to stop him because everyone knew what was happening in the outer court was really wrong. Like, I I think the, the people, like, if I'm there, if I'm just a normal person who's coming to worship God and I see Jesus come in and start kicking things over, start driving these guys out, like, I'm rooting and hollering because, like, I've been in line way too long, like, we, let's speed up the process. So I think the people are on Jesus' side, like, finally, someone's doing something about it. But the religious leaders, I think the, religi- re- the religious leaders, they knew that what they were doing was wrong and what Jesus was doing, well, that Jesus was acting with higher moral authority than them. Which leads me to an observation. Please note that Jesus... He cares what's happening in his temple. But like Jesus cared what was happening here. But you know, there's not a temple anymore, is there? I've been to, to Israel. There's no temple. But, but, but interestingly enough, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, the apostle Paul says there's no need for a temple made with hands. Why? Because do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Who is in you, who you have from God, and that you are not your own. You see, there's not a temple made with hands because you are the temple of the living God. And if Jesus cared as passionately as he did what was happening in that physical temple, I think it's safe for us to make the assumption that Jesus cares what's happening in that temple and this temple. We'll leave this to a B side. But are there things that Jesus wants to overturn in you? Things that he sees? Things that can't continue to operate without his intervention? Well, then Jesus, verse 17, he taught, saying to them, "'Is it not written, "'My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, "'but you have made it a den of thieves.'" and the scribes and the chief priests they heard it and they saw how they might destroy him for they feared him because all the people were astonished at his teaching and when evening had come Jesus went out of the city now in order to justify his actions Jesus he teaches a sermon that Mark only gives us kind of a snippet of and we can conclude his text was from Isaiah chapter 56 now, though Mark only quotes for us the last little bit of this section of Scripture, let me read it for you just so you understand what Jesus is communicating. In Isaiah 56, we read, "...also the sons of the foreigner," the Gentile, "...who joined themselves to the Lord, Yahweh, to serve him and to love the name of Jehovah, to be his servants." Everyone who who keeps from defiling the Sabbath, who hold fast my covenant, even them, though they're not Jewish, I will bring to my holy mountain and I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. Speaking of the temple and their burnt offering and their sacrifice will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. You see, the purpose of the court of the Gentiles was to provide the nations of the world a place that they could come and encounter the true and living God of Israel. Sadly, they had turned this outer court, this holy place, into, well, a den of thieves. Now, before we we proceed, another observation that we'll leave to a B-side, but just a nugget that, that I find encouraging. So think about it, Jesus... He goes in on Sunday to the temple. He observes what's happening, right? He doesn't react. Goes back to Bethany for the night. He's thinking it through. He's determined. He knows what what has to happen. He goes back. He does it. Teaches a sermon to justify what's happened. And, And what does he use to justify his action? What is the basis? The basis is that Jesus used Scripture, Jesus used Scripture as the basis for his action. Let me challenge you to use Scripture as the basis for your actions. Jesus did, and if Jesus found it necessary, I think we too. I get this mental picture that Jesus, he goes back to Bethany and he's praying, What do I do? And this passage comes to his remembrance. He's like, my house is to be a house of prayer, but they've made it a den of thieves, and I've got to do something. Scripture was his basis. Now, notice the reaction of the religious establishment towards Jesus first. We're told that they heard it, so they hear the message, and they sought how they might destroy him. Now, it's interesting to me that they were angry, note, by what Jesus said, not by what he did. They weren't angry because Jesus drove out the money changers. What angered them was what Jesus said as his justification for driving out the money changers. And when you place that in context to their total bigotry and hatred towards the Gentiles and what Jesus is really saying, you understand why what Jesus was saying would would irk them. Jesus pricked a conscience within these religious leaders that they were not willing to have swayed. And you know, we're told that faith, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, which tells us, it reveals to us a lack of faith and a complete hardening of the heart concerning this, these religious leaders. The second reaction we find is that they wanted to destroy Jesus because they feared him. Why? Because all the people were astonished at his teaching. These men were afraid of Jesus because, well, Jesus was a threat to their power, to their racket, to their coin. Mark says that they were astonished at his teaching. The people, the religious leaders knew that if they were to destroy Jesus, they would first have to reinforce their authority amongst the people if they were to sway the population. This is why, as we'll see in the next coming weeks, they immediately engage in a series of debates with Jesus, trying to do what? Directly targeting Jesus's authority. They're trying to undermine the people's perception of Jesus. And we'll see next week that Jesus deals with them masterfully. Now back to our scene of activity. We're told that Jesus, he spends the afternoon teaching the people. He leaves, he returns to Bethany. Now, in the morning, verse 20, which means it's Tuesday, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree. Same route, same path, same tree, but it had been dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering, good job, Peter, that was only yesterday, but but he remembers. And he says to Jesus, Rabbi, look, The fig tree which you cursed has withered away. Now, if healing blind Bartimaeus, as we saw a few weeks ago, was the last of Jesus' healing miracles before the resurrection, the cursing of the fig tree is the final miracle performed by Jesus before the resurrection. And you should note that the cursing of the fig tree is one of the most unique miracles and the entire earthly ministry of Jesus. Now, the Old Testament, the Old Testament is full of what we would classify as destructive miracles. These are miracles where God acts supernaturally, miraculously, but it's to destroy and to judge people. The earth opening up and swallowing the sons of Korah the angel of the Lord appearing and killing 185,000 Assyrians camped outside of Jerusalem. Like there are miracles in the Old Testament of a destructive nature, judgment. But this is what's interesting. The cursing of the fig tree is the only time in Jesus's ministry where he performs this type of miracle there were four things you were supposed to remember, right? We'll just go through them quickly. Jesus had a unique hunger, right? He came to the tree desiring food. Thirdly, the tree appeared to have fruit, but in actuality possessed only leaves. And because of the tree's fruitlessness, Jesus curses the fig tree. Now, the key to our understanding of this destructive miracle, it really rests in our understanding of what the fig tree represents in Scripture. I don't think Jesus cursed the fig tree simply because he was hungry. It didn't offer breakfast, and it ticked him off. Like, I think, especially in in context of everything going on, that this miracle, it's unique because it's, we're given this detail that Jesus was hungry. It's unique because it's the only destructive miracle we're given. So I think we can assume that the miracle itself, it, it goes much deeper, it runs much further than just the most literal of understanding. Jesus was hungry, the tree didn't have fruit, he curses it. Peter observes, the next day, it's got, it's totally withered, right? The key is our understanding of the fig tree. And I think that there are two ways, two equally appropriate and relevant ways that we can view the fig tree in light of Scripture. First, The fig tree represents the nation of Israel. Now, there are many passages that you can reference, but I'm just going to give you two to provide a justification for this position. In Judges 9, verses 10 and 11, we're told, Then the the trees said to the fig tree, You come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Should I cease my sweetness and my good fruit? And go to sway over trees. Now, that's kind of a confusing passage, but in context to what Joshua is entering the land of promise that's filled with other trees, the fig tree was representing the arrival of Israel amongst other groves of trees. Hosea 9, verse 10 we're told that I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. That'll be relevant next Sunday. And I saw you, speaking of Israel, your fathers. As the first fruits on the fig tree and its first season. And why did Jesus curse the fig tree? Not because it didn't yield figs and its full crop when it was in season, Jesus was irritated because it lacked a first fruit. So, the fig tree, you can make a solid biblical argument, represents the nation of Israel which means the implications are fascinating. Jesus, Jesus had a hunger. And who did he come to have that hunger satisfied, to find pleasure within? He came to Abraham. And he grew Abraham into a nation. The Hebrew people, Jesus desired to be satisfied by Israel. But when he came to her, he found the appearance of fruit. But when he got close, what did he discover? That there was no fruit at all. Only an outward appearance of what it really lacked. Kind of places in context what Jesus had done the previous day, doesn't it? Israel. Israel was advertising what it didn't have. Israel upheld an outward image of holiness, but she lacked substance. She was pretending to be what she was not. And this, it disappointed Jesus. Now the application, I think is multifaceted. Though the immediate application for Israel will become obvious because Jesus will curse her, right? Israel, some 40 years after this, the Romans, the Romans will come in and sack the city, though the immediate application is obvious in a greater sense. I think in Jesus' handling Israel, I think he's providing you and I an important lesson on fruitlessness. First, we should observe that Jesus desires that we produce fruit. He came to the tree desiring fruit, and he desires fruit from you and from me, from us, from Israel, from the church. But understand that fruit is not something that can be manufactured or produced on our own. You never go by a a vineyard or an apple grove and you see little pieces of fruit just desperately trying to become a full apple. No, becoming fruit is something that takes place in in a natural way, in an organic way. It's not something, fruit being not something we can will or knuckle down and make come into existence. You can't produce your own fruit. I hope you understand that. Jesus comes to you desiring fruit. The irony is you can't produce fruit in and of yourself. So where does the fruit come from? Please understand And we don't have time to develop the full thought in in and of itself. But fruit, fruit is not something you can will into existence. Fruit is a natural byproduct of the Holy Spirit's work in and through your life. It is something that is produced naturally from your relationship with Jesus. If you abide in the vine, then you'll produce fruit. Galatians chapter 5 verse 22 Paul says the fruit of the spirit it's love the fruit the singular the fruit what will be produced it's love and in our love joy and peace and long suffering and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control Jesus comes to you and he wants to see love for one another and in your love these character traits and then Paul says, if we live in this Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. So Jesus desires that you produce fruit. But secondly, if we don't please Jesus, well, guess what? It'll be impossible for you to please anyone else. Since the tree produced no fruit to satisfy the Creator who came to be satisfied, to be filled, Jesus cursed the tree so that what? so that no other person would ever taste of its fruit. Since it didn't produce fruit for Jesus, Jesus made sure that tree would never produce fruit for anyone else, which tells us a greater spiritual lesson, doesn't it? If your life, please note, if your life doesn't bring joy to Jesus, if you're not bringing joy to your heavenly Father, it will be impossible for your life to bring joy to anyone else. If you want to bring joy to your spouse, to your wife, or your husband, understand that the only way you can bring joy to them, that you can satisfy them, is by first seeking to satisfy Jesus. And in satisfying him, guess what then happens? The Spirit of God, you produce fruit, and you begin to satisfy others. So many people, so many people in ministry only produce sour, rotten fruit because they're cursed. Why? Because they've disconnected themselves from Jesus. Jesus finds no pleasure in them, and thus Jesus will make sure that no one else finds pleasure. The third thing is that fruitlessness, you should note, is a byproduct. So fruitlessness, if if fruit is a a natural byproduct of the Holy Spirit, fruitlessness, well, we're told here, it's a byproduct of what? Of a root problem. When Jesus cursed the tree, Peter observes what? Mark tells us that it did something unique. It dried up from the roots, which is the opposite way a tree typically withers. As the soil loses moisture, as the plant begins to lose nourishment, as the sun begins to beat down, a tree begins to wither. From the outside working in, right? The leaves begin to wither and turn and fall. And then the outer branches begin to dry out. The trunk, the roots stay wet as long as they possibly can. So most trees wither from the outside in. But when Jesus addressed this tree, we find that it withered from the inside out. The roots dried out, which presents another spiritual lesson, doesn't it? If there isn't fruit in your life, if you examine your life and you're like, I got a problem. There's no fruit. I'm not satisfying anyone. My life's a mess. I'm not bringing joy to Jesus. I'm not bringing joy to other people. My life is a train wreck and everyone's a bystander. Fruitlessness. If that's your problem, or you feel like you've withered, you're dried up, you're parched, the issue It's not what you're doing, per se. It's where you're abiding. The problem, it's your roots. Or, you might say in another way, the heart. Psalm 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in the law he meditates day and night, and then check it out, he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth what? It's fruit and it's season, whose leaf will not wither and whatever he does will prosper. If you feel dry or you feel fruitlessness, you're looking at your life and it's a mess. The solution is not 12 steps. It's not to read some other book. It's not Joel Olstein, How to Be a Better You. The solution to your problem is to find yourself planted by the rivers of living water. The solution is to plant yourself in God's word and to abide in Jesus and to let him produce nourishment and growth and fruitfulness. But the fourth thing, Jesus, I think it's safe to say he's angered by hypocrisy. Mark says, in seeing from afar a, a fig tree having leaves, Jesus went to see if perhaps he would find something. He gets shirked out. And when he came and he found nothing but leaves, then we get his response. What upset Jesus, it was not just the fact that the tree was fruitless, but the fact that the tree had the appearance of fruit and was fruitless. Please note note the subtlety there. It wasn't that the tree didn't have fruit. It was that the tree had the appearance like it did, but was just faking it. Jesus is not only disinterested in the appearance of a false morality or what we might simply say is leaves without fruit, but Jesus is deeply and passionately angered by it. In Revelation chapter three, in addressing the church of Laodicea, Jesus says, because you were neither hot nor cold, but because you are lukewarm, and the reaction, I will puke you out of my mouth, I will vomit you out of my mouth. It is very descriptive language used by Jesus. But here he just curses the tree. The problem with Israel was that they were pretending to be what they were not. I'm gonna ask you a question this morning. Are you pretending to be something you're not? Maybe from a distance, people look at your life and say they got it all together. They see the leaves. But the closer and the closer and the closer that they get, or that you allow, the more and more obvious it becomes that you're really not who you appear to be. You know, when people come to church, we all look fruitful. We got our leaves blowing in the wind, everything's good. We got this appearance. If you're faking it, that ticks Jesus off. Why? Because he can do nothing with you. Who was faking it? It was the religious leaders that Jesus was battling. And those were the people that Jesus had the strongest and starkest criticism towards. If you're faking it, don't. Plant yourself by the rivers of living water. I mentioned that there's two ways you can view the fig tree. You can view it as in the the nation of Israel. But I think in a greater sense that the fig tree, it transcends simply Israel. It's actually a picture of all religion. There is a a concept in in bibliology, the study of the Bible, known as the law first mention, that the first time you find something mentioned often says a lot about what that thing is through the rest of Scripture. And, interestingly enough, the law of first mention when it comes to the fig, and specifically the leaves, mind you, takes us to Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to read you verse 6. So when the woman saw, when Eve saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eye, that it was a tree desirable to make one wise, a tree of the knowledge of good and evil, she took of its fruit and she ate. She gave it to Adam. He ate. The eyes of both were open. They sinned. They knew they were naked. There was a physical, a metaphysical, spiritual, emotional understanding that they were now fallen, flawed, that they had fallen short. They knew they were naked. And what did they do? They understood that my sin is wigging me out. I need to be covered. And we're told that they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves covering. I don't know if you've ever seen a fig leaf, but it's prickly. And fig leaves, or any leaf really that's not connected to a tree, it dries out pretty quick. I mean, they made for themselves covering. Covering what? Their sin, their inadequacy. They made fig leaf coverings, but that wouldn't work. That couldn't last. Imagine calling Joe the plumber to your house, and he's wearing nothing but fig leaves. That doesn't cut it. And when God comes, and when God sees Adam and Eve in these fig leaf coverings, he addresses them. But there's a detail that's fascinating. Because God knew that that covering would not work. Their best attempt to cover their sin would would fall short. It was flawed. And we're told in verse 21 of Genesis 3, And also, for Adam and Eve, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Where did he get the tunics of skin? Old Navy, No, the very first sacrifice, the very first blood offering to provide covering for sin. It was God. I think more specifically, probably Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. And so when Jesus is walking, to do what? To deal with Israel, true, but more importantly, to be the Passover sacrifice. To be the lamb that would be placed on the altar and would die to provide what? A permanent covering for sin. He looked over at a fig tree and he cursed it. Why? You didn't provide covering then, and you've never provided covering since. And I'm going to truly deal with the issue, to once and for all provide a remedy. All religion is works based whether you're a Mormon or a Muslim, it's all works-based, whether you're a Catholic or Hindu. It's all about you trying to earn favor before God. It's about you covering yourself and making yourself better, but it doesn't work. Religion fails. More people go to hell in the name of religion than anything else. It is the greatest problem facing mankind, but Jesus provided the solution and that's why he cursed the fig tree. You'll never cover anyone, you never have, you never will, and there's no more need for you. I will. Some of you have been trying to cover. You've been trying to cover, and it's uncomfortable, and it's awkward, it's a little prickly. You constantly have to be reinventing it to make it a little better. This morning, quit, stop, and come to Jesus. Plant yourself by the river of living water that you might be fruitful. So, Father.